Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories. My guest today is Pankaj Rai. Pankaj leads the strategy, digital and innovation teams at Wells Fargo, where he is responsible for creating a culture of three E's, effectiveness, efficiency, and experience. In this conversation, he talks about his childhood and various things that he learned from different people in his network, where he says the network selects you from his dad, from his boss, as well as colleagues and making career transitions without having a fear of failure. We go on to talk about the importance of inclusion, diversity, collaboration, and a whole variety of topics and his advice for not only IT career aspirants and mid-career professionals, but anyone, including his own daughter, the 3C framework that later got expanded to five C's of curiosity, compassion, conviction, creativity, and Communication. Listen on. Hi, Pankaj. Welcome to the Software People Stories. I know we've been playing telephone tags and all that, so finally we get to talk. And uh, the more I hear about you and the more I heard from you, I think there are a lot of things that we can cover and I'm sure we will cover. Yeah. As usual, we'll start from the beginning and nothing as great as a self-introduction. So if you can start with telling our listeners, your background and then how you got into you know, where you are now. Yeah, Shiv. So let me start from the very beginning. In fact, uh, a day before the beginning. So the day before I was born, Mrs. Gandhi privatized all Indian banks. And on the day that I was born, uh, Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. So I, I have to say that I sort of came into the world on very sort of uh, prophetic uh, moments in history. <laughs> but that is... Exactly for mankind, yeah. So that was suppose 51 years ago. It's been a long while since then. And I grew up initially in uh, Gorakhpur, which is a small uh, factory town. My dad used to work in a fertilizer factory and they had a colony. So my initial worldview was, uh, I have to say, quite uh, cosmopolitan, which when I look back, I realize. Uh, because when people hear Gorakhpur, they say, oh, so you are from UP, so you know this and you know that. And I said, you know, inside the factory town, there was no UP. It was all of India. There were, uh, you know, Sikhs and there were Malayalis and there were Tamilians and there were North Indians and there were all kinds of people. And of course, at that point of time, I didn't realize that I was fortunate enough to have uh, lived my early life in a very cosmopolitan area, <laughs> despite being in a, in a Northern Indian city. Uh, and, and I sometimes think that I wish we had more Jamshedpurs and more such colonies where people from all over <laughs> sort of come, come together and Hopefully, the world would be a much more uh, better place when people appreciate each other from the very beginning. But anyway, uh, then, of course, uh, dad got promoted, moved to Delhi, the big bad world of Delhi, which is where I spent the next uh, 25 years, uh, education and college and so on. And then briefly, I was in um, uh, Singapore and then in Bangalore. In terms of my uh, you know, education and professional journey, I think uh, most people from our generation were told by our parents that you either choose to be an engineer or a doctor. 
and in my case uh, my dad himself had a very uh, you know interesting background and you know sometimes you realize how much you are shaped by your parents uh, lives and their aspirations so my dad uh, was uh, you know one of those uh, if some of you have seen the movie super 30 he was that uh, type of a person who grew up in a very small uh, village uh, in up and then uh, made it to iit bombay and knowing only one language bhojpuri so he learned hindi and english uh, while in bombay uh, so that was his sort of uh, you can say uh, rags to not necessarily riches but to sort of some <laughs> some uh, getting out of uh, the village and getting into <laughs> a better position so to say story uh, so clearly from that background his aspiration was that his children should have a good life and should get a good education and all of that so me and my brother from a very early age uh, knew that uh, we had to go into the space called iit where my dad had gone and that is the only okay. aim he has for us and uh, we didn't have any options anyway so many people didn't know this but even in gorakhpur we knew what iit was and that we are supposed to get there and to get there you have to be really good in studies and therefore the conversation at home after school used to be that why did you lose that one mark in maths when i never okay. lost a mark i always got 100 and how can you guys lose a mark so that was a kind of uh, you know <laughs> background we all grew up in so i was the guinea pig who was asked to take both biology and uh, you know engineering so that i could either be an engineer or doctor who knows you know my dad didn't want to take any chances so i sat for all those exams i also got got admission to uh, you know medicine but then clearly uh, in my biology class i used to dread it my you know the tadpole that i was dissecting would run away and i would get scared all of that so i realized that biology wasn't for me and i took up uh, engineering my brother of course who came two years later was smarter he just chose mechanical drawing and didn't take biology so he could take only half the exams okay. and uh, he still so, and both of us you know long story short dad's aspirations came true both of us went to iit delhi electrical engineering as well <laughs> although he was a mechanical engineer so that has been the sort of uh, early age and then of course uh, most people who were doing engineering used to go to uh, either abroad and do uh, masters or uh, then stay home and do mba and when i started writing my statements of purpose which is what the us universities ask you to do i realized that actually my purpose was not even to do electrical engineering forget doing masters when you start thinking about it and then thankfully i got got admission into an mba college and then i went and did my uh, mba from um, anandabad uh, and there also i was quite lucky because i got just one admission and the reason for that also was that mba school those days probably these days also conduct what they call group discussion and mm-hmm. i was a bit of a quiet person so i just couldn't talk in any of those group discussions so i must have scored a nil in most of them except uh, amdavad where they said all of you have 2 minutes each so everyone got a chance to speak so thankfully okay. i got to to just one of them uh, and after that i went to a uh, sort of a startup company startups wasn't a big thing those days but this company called feedback ventures which was started by alumnus from um, uh, i am uh, amdavad itself and there were some seniors who came and said great company and you should uh, come here and you learn a lot and this was back in 93 when indian economy had just been liberalized there was a lot of interest in new investments from outside also indian companies were expanding so it was good uh, couple of years we were advising uh, founders on what should they do and so on and so forth uh, and then a friend of mine who was in icici said that you know this is a great place why don't you you know come here i'll get you interviewed and uh, at that point in time his boss uh, sandeep bakshi was now the md of icici uh, he sort of uh, interviewed and then uh, hired me and the first thing he said after i got hired was that uh, remember when you were in consulting you could give any advice and the client is responsible for that but we are in the business of lending 
and we make uh, two rupees on a good loan and lose hundred on a bad one. So remember, whatever advice you give, the odds are fifty is to one. So be careful. Just don't give any advice on who to lend money to. And we all know how how many uh, you know loans uh, went bad in the financial sector. And uh, you know we see so many of these founders uh, waiting to be extradited from London and so on. So I was part of that uh, original project financing world when Indian economy was growing. Everyone was putting up projects and. It was quite a good experience. You learn a lot. I tell people that when you lend money to people, you learn a lot. You'll get to know everything about them when you have to recover it. And uh, we all learned all of those things. And then when I got married, I think the the, the phraseology in ICICI used to be that you know, they didn't pay too much. They were a more of a government company. So hey, you know, you have to one day start uh, earning and stop learning. Enough of mm-hmm. learning, and and then uh, G Capital came along because there was another friend uh, who was there, and he got me interviewed, and my sort of doubled my salary and joined a multinational it's another matter that the moment i left icsa it became a bank lots of people got shares and all of them became very rich later on but that is all uh, you know hindsight so <laughs> initially uh, you know all of those things you don't know so g was great i think uh, one learned a lot about how will large multinational companies operates in hundreds of countries and uh, you know um, you know how do you run a large uh, conglomerate there was so many uh, i would say a cultural element that i learned jack welch used to be the leader in those days uh, he would talk about you know boundaryless behavior uh, leadership qualities i still remember his four e's of leadership uh, energy energize edge execute you know, there were so many things uh, that i learned in g great company including six sigma which i ended up doing uh, for 18 months as a black belt uh, so i learned a lot of things and that company also made me think beyond financial services and beyond credit underwriting which is what i used to do because the six sigma rotation opened my eyes to doing so many other things and therefore my next job then uh, was in standard chartered in the offshore world the ge had also created an entity called jekis which is now called genpack and the whole off- offshoring activity was growing and there's someone from uh, ge called uh, rumi malhotra had gone to standard chartered and someone introduced me to him and he hired me and i went to standard and spent 6 months in chennai and a year in uh, singapore and then rumi had come to delhi in bangalore and then he sort of called me over and i came to delhi which is where i spent the uh, next 11 years i had been here in bangalore for now 15 years and in those years 7 8 9 years were probably spent in the data analytics field and that was also happened chance um, there was an expert uh, jay shrinivas an indian guy who had set up the data analytics team and he said uh, we want to do dell financial services analytics and you have some banking background why don't you do dfs analytics and um, i said yeah let's try it out and that was the time when analytics was not such a fashionable world but uh, by the time i joined uh, analytics has started to boom and you know we ended up creating a great uh, analytics team over there in dell then again a few friends had moved over to wells fargo and they said this is a great place it's growing lots of new things you've always been a banker you can come back and do this so that's where i have now been uh, close to 5 years so if you look at the story in my uh, you know professional career uh, it's really uh, moving from one place to another uh, on the advice of some friend in the target company who felt that that place will be more interesting and better for me to go over and i trusted their advice and went over so uh, when people ask about you know how do you plan your career and what do you want to do or what do you want to specialize in and i think when i reflect back i think what i had probably without knowing wanted was uh, a, a nice culture where there are good people that i can engage with and frankly it didn't matter whether they were doing technology or analytics or finance or strategy uh, and that's what i think i have probably learned about myself that i'm not so focused on the nature of work uh, but more on the the context and the people and if that is good uh, you know the the work i think uh, follow so that's been my um, i would say professional journey shape <laughs> wonderful actually i can see a lot of threads that have probably been common or running through right from the beginning uh, the way you were explaining it 
I'll try to paraphrase and then I'll let you respond and uh, maybe build on that. Uh, see, right from this, uh, the giant leap for mankind that you mentioned, many of your career transitions or role transitions seem to also be leaps of faith because you said somebody felt that you could do it and then you had the confidence of getting in and doing that. So when you take such leaps of faith, there are also other associated aspects, uh, particularly, I guess, in your current role, when you are running strategy, sometimes you probably have to take those leaps of faith. While you have gone through that yourself, has any of that helped you in bringing that kind of enthusiasm or the uh, willingness to take risks, so to say, in the organization? Yeah. So, you know, uh, um, I think it's interesting you say that and I had not uh, thought of it that way. But now when I reflect on that statement, I don't know whether I was, I ever felt that I was uh, taking a big risk except uh, Standard Chartered, where while, uh, you know, I was recommended to join that place and Romy Manotra was the boss who had me. I didn't really know him. But all other yeah. places, there was a peer of mine or a you know close friend of mine who was there and you know I said yeah if this guy says it's good for me I mean it better be good or you know this fellow will help me out and all of that so I never felt I was taking a big risk I felt you know I'm just going to join a friend and you know they will take care of me um, uh, so uh, so looks like uh, it, it didn't appear risky at that point in time except like I said one time when I didn't know the guy plus I was moving from Delhi to Chennai first time leaving Delhi so that was a bit of a leap of faith at least for my wife and children in fact we were expecting okay. our second daughter so she said is this the right time for you to change the dog and that to move away because I to go alone and you know stay there so that was the only time i would say there was a bit of a, a leap of faith uh, but then i had heard good things and there was enough uh, uh, data to sort of say that it would should be okay it should turn out to be okay uh, so many a times i would say that uh, these never appeared to be risk and even today i'm in a strategy job and um, I, I take many decisions personally and professionally and i it's it's uh, interesting i don't know why nothing ever appears risky to me because it seems to me that whatever I'm thinking, by and large, I think I'm right, it will happen. If not, I'll figure it out. So there's never this, uh, you know, moment of worry that what if I fail? You know, a lot of people say, don't you worry about failure? And I have no idea why it happened that way, but I have no worry about failure in general. And maybe uh, because I have been lucky and I have not experienced any big failure, which gives me this uh, uh, unrequired confidence and maybe one day it will get shattered. But in general, so far, it has always appeared that, yeah, this sounds good and we'll make it happen. And, you know, what if it doesn't, then we'll figure something out and that should be okay as well. So there's never a worry or a fear, um, um, Shiv. And now that you say it, I'm, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> but... <laughs> So if I didn't plant any seeds of confusion, I'm sure things <laughs> yeah. are successful. Because you know, one of the things that I've heard from many engineers, when they become managers or when they need to take some of these roles where uh, everything is not defined, there is a little bit of uncertainty or they are unsure about themselves, saying that unless I have all the details, which also manifests in the need for control or need for going down to the last level of detail, etc. So how would you characterize your own leadership style? I have to say that now that you say that, I think I thrive in chaos. So I love it when no one gives me a JD or a job definition. In fact, uh, I generally don't like they give it to me uh, because I know that when I get in there, I'll change it anyway. So uh, my own view is that uh, 
I have been hired to join a place to make a contribution to make the company successful and not uh, necessarily the immediate role or the immediate boss. So my view is let me go figure out and see how I can make that contribution. And it may hopefully be going much beyond the JD. And of course, I don't want to be a vagabond and do any kind of thing, but then go back to my boss or whoever that is to say, you know what, I think I could do all of these things. Why are you limiting me into this JD that you thought I could do? I should obviously do that, but uh, why not this and why not that? So my approach is to continue to challenge and say, what else can I do and how else can I do it and so on and so forth. So I actually do that and I enjoy that. In fact, someone told me, this is it and don't do something. I think I'll feel very uh, claustrophobic and bored if that were to be the case. So I actually don't like a <laughs> defined job or a defined goal or defined because I think it is so much more uh, enjoyable when you can uh, define or co-define or jointly define and then uh, get people together and uh, do it. Very nice. I can totally relate to that because I also probably share some of those traits easily get bored, not about doing things, saying the urge to learn something new or do something different. See, another thread, which is also something interesting I found is when you talked about the staying on campus I mean, in Gorakhpur days and within the factory campus where you also mentioned that there were people from different states or different languages and different things that are there. Now, in the current role of say deploying strategy, which in itself is probably kind of vague or you know, people understand it in different ways. What do you think is the relationship between another equally vague word culture, organizational culture, and how do you kind of blend the two from a strategy deployment perspective? Yeah. So I think uh, you're absolutely right. It's culture is uh, you know very, very hard to define, sometimes uh, also hard to determine. Uh, so my approach in general has been that uh, I know my preferences, I know my sort of way of doing things and my culture, so to say. So I go all out to the entire ecosystem and share with them who I am, what I think, what I want to do and how I think we can together make a win-win out of it. Uh, so almost, uh, you know, Sapka Saath, Sapka Vikas, Sapka Vishwas, the last Vishwas is very critical. Uh, is my philosophy, although <laughs> people who don't like Modi will say, why are you quoting him? But if you just take that statement, I think it's a wonderful statement if you think about, uh, you know, uh, making a difference in a collaborative way. So that has been my approach, uh, you know, always. And it was just natural. Now that uh, someone put phrases to it, I can say, oh, yeah, I think uh, I probably do that naturally because it felt that uh, if you do that, it is long term, it is sustainable. There's no conflict. Everyone is happy. And it appeared to me that why would actually one not do that? <laughs> it sounds so logical. It's not really a philanthropic activity or something that you do because, you know, someone wants you to do it. It just, uh, even from an engineering mind, sounds extremely logical that if you do something where everyone is winning, everyone is trustworthy, then those relationships will be long lasting. You will all together, uh, you know, make a bigger difference. So that has been my approach that create the culture that you are around you. And hopefully, you know, people who don't relate to it uh, may reject you and they go away and, and that's fine as well. So that's my approach that, you know, your network is what selects you. And that self-selection happens if you keep uh, wearing your brand on your sleeve. And that's what I tend to do. So I do all kinds of talking. I share what I think, share what I'm doing, how I want to do things, all of that. And over time, uh, the people who can relate to it will come closer, who can't will go away, which is great because then there's no conflict. <laughs> yeah, I like the wonderful phrase that you use, the network selects you. So how do you go about building the network? I don't. It builds on its own. So my job is to just, just like, you know, think about a company 
branding itself on television mm. the customers who like them choose it. you are you don't have to go after a customer the customer mm. who believes in you will come to you so to me i don't care who you are as long as you can relate to my values and beliefs then you are with me otherwise you are not and that's mm. how i look at it so it's not as if i would choose to say oh you know what i want shiv in my network mm. no i want x in my network who can relate to it and if he happens to be shiv great mm. so how do you carry the team with you not your direct uh, reportees or your team as a strategy officer when you expect people to probably have a common purpose maybe in the campus analogy everybody had the association to the factory and uh, at least maybe what the impact the factory creates through the fertilizers how do you create a similar sense here when most of our colleagues are all professionals who have more allegiance to their profession than to the organization so i think there are two three things one uh, uh, knowing the strength of the team and knowing where the company is going come up with a goal which is aspirational i think uh, smart people love to go after aspirational goals versus you know regular goals two i think each individual has some strengths so try to give them stuff that can leverage their strengths and of course things that they can learn from also allow opportunities for diverse people to collaborate so i'll say you know what x and y why don't you work together and they will have complementary skill they will learn from each other they'll create something bigger than what they would do otherwise and at times uh, giving them some other side projects which may not be relevant immediately for the company but could be mm-hmm. you know it could be an extracurricular activity saying why don't you you know um, help out in this uh, running club or this new uh, uh, sort of session that we are trying to organize or write a white paper on this or why don't you give a talk on uh, bitcoin or you know whatever is is your strength so trying to see how uh, each individual can sort of bring their whole whole self to work in as many different ways as possible so i i think that everyone enjoys when they can see that they are making a contribution they are collaborating with others together they are winning making progress so i just uh, you know retain a very informal uh, you know attitude at work in fact uh, i don't think i am i'm a different person at work than at office if those same people you know i meet them socially also they'll find the same thing the way i talk the way i engage the way i do so i'm just exactly the same person and which i think uh, people like because many a time they think oh the official version is different and the personal version is different and which one is which all of that i have just one version because i told people that it's very hard to keep version control so i would rather have just one version so that i remember which one that is otherwise i'll try to remember which version do you know and things of that nature and given all these work and life and our social and professional networks has stated uh, my personal view also is that actually most people better emulate me because they try to keep multiple version they themselves will get confused and why do you actually want to have different version what purpose is so i still haven't figured out i know people have typically classified work as a different activity than life and then there is this whole uh, debate about how do you reconcile those two for mm-hmm. me they have never been so distinctly different ever and now to even less so because uh, uh, an, an easy example i say that you know if you take a and, and used to have that take a look at my phone record and say please reimburse my official calls i mm. can't differentiate because the, some of those calls are made to my office people for personal reasons and sometimes to personal friends for official reasons and i won't remember which is which so to me my entire network is one whether you call it official or personal i i don't care to distinguish between those two so i think that's who i am because i i think that all these uh, these identities or these uh, you know silo that we create whether it is uh, you know our own identities related to our you know language or region or company or nation or whatever uh, those are all maybe nice somewhere uh, but frankly they are just means to an end 
to meet a larger good. So I think if you are focused on the largest good possible, uh, all of these are, if they are relevant, uh, please uh, use it. Uh, haven't, I haven't found them too relevant really, if you ask me. So I don't wear any of those identities related to me. I mean, they are, they are there because people look at it that way. But I, I, don't, I don't spend too much time thinking about it. I think, yeah, to the extent uh, I went to a college and I have an alumni network and that's an identity and that allows me to connect with a certain set of friends, great. But that's about it. I don't have any jingoistic feeling about any of those identities. They are conveniences which allow people to come together on a WhatsApp group, which is great, but nothing more than that. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Because this is probably what one also calls as being authentic. It's not about putting different faces or different versions like you call it. And um, also similar to what I normally call this as a work-life blur. When someone asks for a work-life balance, there is no balance. I mean, balance means that something goes up, something comes down. It is not a trade-off. How can you kind of have everything as one big blob? So I know that uh, you also have a lot of other interests you know, than work. So how do you you know, juggle your time is more about finding time to do those things or probably expanding your network in different dimensions, if it were. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, even in the early days, I used to have a long to-do list and books to read or movies to see or many of those things. And I don't, I don't know when uh, that happened. I said, you know, I'm always chasing something. There's always something that is left to do. So let me do the other way around. Let me develop a priority list of things that are important to me. And I'll do the top one, two, three. And if I get time four, or if it doesn't, then it gets messed out. Just like, you know, in the office, we say, focus on the big rocks, leave the mm -hmm. small pebbles, all of that. So I said, I, I think we can do that in life. Mm -hmm. So when I thought about it, I think the number one priority that came forward was sleep. I realized okay. that if I don't get eight hours of sleep properly on a daily basis, I somewhere after a while feel unproductive and not good at all. So I said, uh, wherever there's a choice, I will try to prioritize sleep first. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the second thing that I realized uh, that I enjoy doing is, uh, you know, uh, I'm very curious. So I enjoy talking to people, uh, listening mm -hmm. to them and hearing them. I'm not so much of a reader or a viewer. If I have a live person, I tend to choose that person to talk to. Uh, mm -hmm. versus uh, reading a more erudite text from someone who might be even more learned because just the act of reading to me is very passive but the act of engaging is far more active mm -hmm. so talking uh, or engaging in a conversation is the number two uh, topic and by the way in our office context half the time you are meeting and engaging people so that's happened but even in my personal context most of my free time is spent you know talking to people someone would have referred someone and said, hey, you know what, I've asked so-and-so to talk to you, why don't you chat? So I always say yes to any conversation from anyone. It doesn't matter who they are and why they want to talk because I think I learn something and in my own way, if I can contribute, why not? My uh, other interests are more on the physical side where I actually enjoy you know, trekking and running and cycling, badminton, squash, those types of things. Uh, but those are also to me more group activities. So the run is actually a runversation. I will never run alone uh, on my own. It will always be talking with someone. Cycling, same thing. I'm usually cycling with a group of people and we are chatting along the way and things like that. Uh, badminton also, you can say that we are talking also while playing. So like I said, uh, so physical activity is there, but not a quiet activity. It should be, <laughs> it should be engaging with people and things like that. So, uh, so, so those are the types of things where I spend time. Uh, so therefore, the question is then what do I not do? Because then I said, if I do all of these things, then so a lot of things that most people do, I don't do. Like I said, I don't watch TV. So I have no idea about news. I don't read newspapers. I pretty much don't read books. 
uh, which are quite uh, unnatural. I have no idea what is happening in cricket, who is the captain, who is winning. I don't even know what's happening in uh, squash, badminton or running either. I said, if I have time, I'll go run and play. Why would I want to worry about who's winning and what time? It doesn't matter to me. So I have made my life simple to say, these are the things important to me. I'll focus on it and the rest will fall by the wayside. And that's fine. And then of course, the question in people's mind is, oh, then you will become in a silo. You will not know what's happening today. And, you know, news because earlier, you know, I used to read three newspapers. I would read magazines. I'll read books. And now it's all gone. And now I say that I actually, through all those conversations that I'm having, I think I'm getting what I need. Because people, everyone knows this. And they'll tell me, oh, so by the way, you may not have seen it. Yesterday, such and such happened. I said, oh, great. Thanks, thanks, thanks. You know, so, so in all my conversation, all my networks know that I don't see anything. And I'm actually relying on them to tell me. So they're quite okay. gracious enough to tell me that, you know, by the way, you know, someone won a match or something happened in politics or some controversy happened. And to me, by and large, you know, all these news items are uh, at some level noise. It's not a signal half the time. So I'm quite happy to not uh, gather. There are a few things that I read. There's a magazine called The Economist, which I've been a subscriber for the last 20 years. It's a weekly newspaper in my mind. I browse through it, despite uh, what some of my friends feel about its uh, ideological orientation. Uh, but I like it, like that magazine. I do read some blogs. I will once in a while read a book also. These days I have discovered Audible. So there are two, three Audible books I have read uh, or heard. Uh, Upanishad and uh, Sapiens, and now um, a book called Genes by uh, Siddharth Mukherjee. So anything, you know, someone recommends this a great book. So in my free time, uh, very little of it, I keep uh, hearing it. So therefore, uh, many things that I would say that my friends spend time on, uh, I don't. Because uh, sleep and chatter and uh, physical activity pretty much consumes all the time that I have. Talking of time, I didn't realize that we've been talking for about half an hour. And uh, normally try to keep the episodes around uh, this time. But I would still like to ask you one of my favorite questions, which I ask every guest, which I think is relevant for uh, many of our listeners, uh, which is related to career. Uh, What would be your thoughts or advice, suggestion, whatever you call them, for two segments of people? One who may be considering entering IT today. And the second segment is uh, those people who are typically in their midlife crisis or career. When they're just about to become managers or they're doing something now, they don't know what they should do further. So a few uh, thoughts on that. And this has obviously become far more critical in the recent past when things are changing so fast and the job market is also going down. So this question has been uh, you know, coming up. And since I again talk to a lot of people across age groups, across sectors, here are a few things that I have uh, distilled in my head, which I share with people. One is for the early, uh, early uh, uh, career people. Uh, I think in our generation, we focused a lot on working for a multinational because those days we were globalizing globalizing was creating a lot of opportunities. Multinational companies were obviously superior to Indian companies. They provided great opportunities to people like us who really saw great career growth, uh, good uh, learning, good compensation, all of those things. I think the future next generation, my daughter who just starts her job on Monday. (laughs) So uh, it's her birthday and it's I think... Yeah, and it's her professional birthday also. <laughs> so, so she's going to start her job. So, so for her generation, I, I say a few things which I think will be different from us. That multinationals may not be the best bet for their generation. Because we will probably deglobalize. Plus, uh, you know, uh, I, I think that the Indian economy will grow very rapidly. Lots of opportunities will come up in the domestic market and so on and so forth. Uh, so my personal view is that multinationals in India, you know, selling to Indian companies 
may not necessarily have a great advantage over indian companies so why would you not consider indian companies multinationals who are serving you know global operations will have a you know limited role to play so if our economy grows from 2.5 3 trillion to 20 trillion my guess is it will be a lot more domestic growth driven and therefore focused on indian companies who are going to create those opportunities and therefore don't ignore that focus on that and i think people are doing that so that's one that don't be mindless about multinational second many of my friends went abroad again i'm not 100% sure for the same reason that going abroad is a sure shot great way one deglobalization one differential economic growth why would you not want to be an economy which grows from 3 to 20 versus which is already at 20 might become 25 30 and we don't know how the situation will be on the employment front over there so one is don't prioritize going to the us or working for a multinational that our generation there was slam dunk we had to do it and we did it and we were right i think that that uh, has probably changed second i think we uh, gave a lot of focus on loyalty to a company or an industry i think in our time growth was slow so the only uh, the surrogate to know how good you are and how you contributed was longevity that if you stayed long you can make a bigger contribution it was what now you can make a contribution in a year work mm-hmm. is so fast and the, these digital economies you know you can you can in one year a company can go from x to y so mm-hmm. i wouldn't be surprised that from now 10 years later i look back and i find a cv of a person who has actually changed five or six jobs in those 10 years and mm-hmm. maybe he or she was outgrowing each of those jobs and going into the next gig because that company did not provide an opportunity versus some other person who stayed 10 years with the same company and that same company probably had sub optimal growth Mm-hmm. i would probably choose the first person saying hey you know you were really smart you were making a contribution and the company didn't give you opportunity you want to know the next gig did more more versus the other one who was constrained by the mm-hmm. growth of the company so i think this whole concept of company loyalty is more likely to flip and we might actually like more people who have changed jobs versus today when we are liking people who have not changed jobs so i think a lot of thing that uh, you know we have in our head taken for granted that these are the ways to think about things i think they will all flip on the opposite extreme and many of us are not ready to see it that way so i think the last thing that i will say is what i shared with my daughter which was the 5c framework 3 years ago when she went to college uh, and and i was asked to give her some advice on a similar lesson and i said let me look at three macro trends uh, based on which uh, i will tell you what are the things i see which are going to be in short supply and since uh, short supply things will be hopefully in high demand you acquire those three characteristics and you'll be good and she was studying economics which is the reason for using an economic framework to give her the 3c framework so the first c was related to globalization leading to deglobalization and therefore compassion being in short supply people are becoming more selfish so i think uh, if you are more compassionate you will be an outlier and hopefully that will be good for you the second thing is that you know there were so many choices now earlier we had only two choices very binary ambassador fiat colgate uh, you know foreigns uh, landata ambassador whatever so today they have hundreds of choices so they are all confused they suffer from adhd all of those types of things so i think conviction which is belief in yourself is in short supply today and the third c is really creativity because in the linear world you know you could do continuous improvement but in a non linear world creativity is in short supply so really compassion hopefully giving right to your own conviction leading to creativity and then two years later when she forgot this framework i added two more c's uh the at the beginning i added curiosity and at the end i added uh, communication and i justified by saying you know if you are curious hopefully you will become compassionate hopefully that compassion will lead you to some conviction about what you want to do and that could lead to some creative output which when communicated can fuel the virtuous cycle of uh, curiosity so that is the framework that i shared with her and then i said oh you know what this framework works for me 
works for everyone else. It's not just for you. Yeah. Why would we all not do that? And maybe on a deeper reflection, I felt that maybe I was just uh, telling her what I probably do. You know, many a times, uh, all these frameworks we create based on our own uh, personal innermost feeling without uh, realizing it. So I was probably just throwing at her what I had always done and stood for. So that is something that I have started to feel that is a good way to think about it. And I tell people that maybe this is not for you, but maybe you do your own thinking, develop your own framework, which works for you. Uh, so I would think that, you know, the future is going to be very different from the past and people should not go based on the frameworks which were there in the, in the early days and determine what will work from them and extreme experimentation is required. And you spoke about midlife crisis. I think uh, all of those people, and I'm part of them, we grew up in a very deterministic era. We were rewarded for problem solving. You solve the problem, you get 100 marks. But today problem definition is the issue. What if I gave a math paper and said, tell me the five problems that math should solve. Okay, now solve it. I will give you half the marks for the first one. Many people won't know what problems the maths can solve and which are the important problems to solve. And similarly for everything else. So my view is that, you know, the solution space will be automated by AIML. Problem state is where the value will get created. But we are not training people to define the right problem which is worth solving. And we have been rewarding people for solutioning, which I think is becoming free. There's a website called Kaggle and I tell people that if I have a complex problem, I'll put it on Kaggle. A Hungarian scientist in his free time will solve for free. So why do I need you to solve that problem and pay you anything? I'll get all the solutions. But you tell me what's worth solving in this context. So that's what I think that the, the, the people who are here have been operating in a deterministic order-taking world where the future was predictable. But the world we all know has become agile. But the mindset has not become agile. And agile to me is a growth mindset where you are creating what the future holds for you. Uh, so I, I do think that it's a tough one. Uh, people will have to unlearn and let go of many of those things that have become part of the muscle memory. And I don't think it's easy. We all know anything which has become muscle memory over 15, 20 years is hard to let go. But the more you start thinking about it, realizing it, experimenting with it, hopefully you will get somewhere. So maybe not a great answer for someone who is now thinking how to change career, but I think it's all in the mind. And for the newcomers, I also say that don't uh, always remain a job seeker. Try to be a job creator if the economy has to grow so fast. Some people have to create jobs also. So maybe you are the one. Yeah, nicely summarized. I think very relevant for not only these times, and I can also relate to many of the things that you said. So that's about all the time we have for this episode. And I'm sure there'll be opportunities for continuing the conversation in another episode, or at least we'll catch up in slightly better times for coffee or I don't cycle. So maybe you know, some <laughs> other activity yeah. that we can do together and talk. Yeah. I have many a times uh, summarized as a last statement in some of these chats to say to people, uh, Ja Simran Jile Apni Zindagi. And this is oh. a tagline from a movie which basically says that you figure it out uh, what you are good at. Don't rely on other people. So mm -hmm. I think that's what I think the world expects from us because so many things are so uncertain and we all have to develop that uh, inner confidence to experiment and figure it out versus relying on you know other people telling us, which was possible in a more deterministic, uh, linear, straightforward world. So that's what I would like to end with. Jasim and Zindagi. Nicely summarized. Thanks, Pankaj. Okay, Shiv. Thank yeah. you. We thank Siddharth for the music and Malavika for promoting the Software People stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.